darkly lit. Please take a seat. We have a pot roast cooking in the oven if you're hungry. Oh, the, the blood on the floor? Don't worry about that. It, it, it's nothing. Uh, I am one of your hosts for this evening, Kayla King. I'm joined by my other two co-hosts. We have Sade. Sorry, I'm like, can I act like a sullen teenager? But I'm like, fuck, I don't know how to act. I'm just gonna sit here and slouch in my chair. And we have David. <laughs> Hey, can someone get me a flashlight? I think there's something down here in the crawl space with me. Oh. Kayla, I think I found your pot. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't mean doesn't mean a cooking pot. <laughs> no, cooking pot. No, we not. No, it's not actual. Yeah, pot. but it, no, it's the pot where you keep your pot. <laughs> I think uh, something ate it. We just finished reading uh, the script uh, "Feathers and Teeth" by Sharice Castro Smith, uh, which is. You know what, David? Why don't you give the summary? Okay. Uh, well, first, it's very important to couch this in the fact that this script was written by the same person who wrote Encanto. So, or but, one of the writers of Encanto. She's not only the writer of Encanto, she also, to help give some context too, she also wrote for the Haunting of Hill House series. Fair. Well, here's one thing. Family tragedies are spread throughout all three of these stories. Yeah, she knows her family tragedies. Her family, yes. Weird family dynamics. This is our first play, our first play script that we've read here on uh, Darkly Lit. And it was an interesting one. It's set in 1978, somewhere in the Midwest, in a mill town. We have a cast of four characters. There's Carol, who is the newest addition to the family. She is a nurse who was taking care of the, the late uh, mother of the household while she was suffering from cancer. There is her boyfriend slash partner, Arthur, Arthur mm -hmm. yeah. who is the widower, recently widowed just two months ago. There's a 13-year-old Chris who wants nothing to do with either of them and is dealing with a lot of grief and suspicion about Carol. And uh, there's an 11-year-old German boy named Hugo who lives just across the street. The whole thing is set primarily, all the acts are set in one scene, which is the kitchen of the household. And uh, things take a turn pretty quick when Arthur runs over a creature as he's coming into the driveway. He thinks he might have killed it. We never actually get to see the creature because it immediately gets like thrown into the burned pot for a pot roast. And it's something with feathers and teeth, so they have a hard time identifying what it is. Chris, taking the initiative and hearing the sounds of it whining and moaning in the thing, stabs it to death with a knife. Immediately, the, the fucked up dynamics of this whole family kind of kick in, because it's only the barest minimum of a family. But everybody's trying to pretend that everything's going to be okay. I think Chris might be the most realistic, but she's also got it. I think the best way to summarize this, honestly, is just to point out that pretty much everybody is terrible. Mm -hmm. Pretty much everybody is terrible, and they're all putting on airs to a degree. Chris thinks Carol might have been responsible for the death of her mother. Carol doesn't understand why Chris doesn't want to be friends, but she, clearly she doesn't actually care about Chris. She just wants to be with Arthur. Arthur's fed up that the two most important women in his life now won't get together, but it's possible he might have also been implicit in the death of his wife. 
And then Hugo, Hugo's just crushing on Chris and is kind of strung along by her as what happens is later on the pot mysteriously reappears in the kitchen after being buried in the yard with the body of the animal in it. And now there's baby versions of it in the pot having eaten the body of their mother. So there's some metaphor shit going on here. And while things continue to escalate over the course of the story, eventually everybody is either consumed by the creatures or murdered until only Carol is left. And the play ends on a very bleak note. It's funny. It's tragic. It's got a lot of blood and gore and sci-fi elements. And I think we'll get more into the details of it as we go. But that's my brief summary of Feathers and Teeth. So what did we all think about this? I guess, uh, what is our general opinions? I thought it was a fun read. Initially, like, okay, don't know. I don't remember why we chose we're reading this. I forgot it was, like, connected to Encanto. Um, I don't know. It very quickly was like, oh, okay, this is this is going to be kind of interesting, kind of fun. And, yeah, it, it didn't disappoint. And I wouldn't say I loved the end, but overall it was, you know, a fun ride. Definitely a quick and easy read, too. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way about the ending because uh, I wanted things to go one way and then they completely went another. And I'm mm -hmm. like, that's actually kind of surprising that it leaves me going, oh, no. You know, that's how I felt. Yeah, I think. For the most part, this is a, definitely a fun mm. ride. I would love to see this performed. Yeah, I would love to see it. Uh, the, the directions are very good. I love the way that the voice, the the action goes, honestly. Mm -hmm. I One of the things I always get weary about when someone writes horror for theater is like, oh, they're going to turn it down a notch because it's theater. But no, the, she has no issue being like, nope, there's blood, there's murder. People are getting eaten. Mm -hmm. There is torture <laughs> Finding a really clever way to to make it so you could do this without much of a, like not make it a huge production and hide the creatures. You never see the creatures. They're only ever described. Mm -hmm. A lot of it seems, is, seems to be sound based as well with the creatures, because there's a point where I believe you're supposed to hear the creatures around the mm -hmm. auditorium. Yeah, like scurrying through the walls and stuff. Which I, I could only imagine how uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very Gremlins-esque, almost. Mm -hmm. The the thing is, though, there's some loose ends or like things that I'm like, why does that not get addressed? Uh, but maybe there is something I missed. Like, okay, you have Chris, and there's a point where Chris uncomfortably sits on her dad's lap. Yeah, I thought at that moment she was like being possessed by her dead mother. I thought that was maybe where we we're gonna go with that, but then it's completely unaddressed. No, I had that issue too. I wonder if the intention was to leave you with a lot of these open-ended questions though, because like nothing is ever truly set in stone in terms of like the explanations for things. We only get ideas and implications because everything's coded in this veil of like lies and only what you can kind of see on the surface. I mean, I think the most insight we get is really honestly Chris because she gets those creepy nightmarish window visions that pop up in the background for her. I also feel like that it was kind of left a little like open, not really open-ended, but like unfinished because she was like, oh, I think I'm communicating with my mother. And then we do get that instance where like, there's like shadow mom in the window when like Chris is being killed, suffocated. You know, I thought maybe the mother saves her or something, but in the end, it didn't actually add anything. No, it didn't. I I don't know why it's in there. I guess it's to create discomfort. That's the only thing I can think of. Because that's the only part that I am a bit more like, why was that added? I mean, for the most part, you do kind of realize that Carol is not a very nice person at all. And it could be possible she is a demon. I mean, if we have these horrifying creatures with feathers and teeth existing that eat people, 
Why couldn't she possibly be a demon? But that wasn't the implication that she was pregnant with them? Oh, no, no, because she said she was pregnant. She's like, I'm pregnant when she got into a fight with Chris. Right. But then at the end, it was like she rubs her belly and we hear the creatures. I thought that was like because the sound is emitting from her belly. I, I, I kind of got that impression, but I almost got it was more like a metaphor. Like the, you know, the creatures eating everything alive is almost like the way Carol is and that she's going to give birth to more monsters, essentially. <laughs> like metaphorically speaking, I don't know. Well, because there was also that part where her eyes go black. Yeah, like that's true. So I thought she was like the mother of these creatures. It could be i mean they're they're at least in a weird metaphysical sense like i mean the things were born in her mother's uh antique pot which now we can't even be sure is true truly hers either because she lied about her upbringing mm -hmm. to chris i mean when she first says i'm pregnant there's always that part of my brain that's like near line bitch so it's hard to know what's real or what's not but then she does rub her belly and like i'm reading stage directions right now because i have the script up and it says carol takes a moment to survey the wreckage in the kitchen she rubs her belly and all of a sudden we can hear strange chirping of the newborn animals in the pot. Like, Where oh, it's like it's flashing back to the newborn animals since they're not in the pot anymore. Maybe. But hmm. then Carol very deliberately turns off the light in the kitchen. She exits. Maybe that's to, to like signal more the fact that these animals are now going to eat. Uh, they're going to eat Chris. They're going to eat Chris's body, basically. Yeah she's kind of getting away scot-free with this because the creatures basically eat everything and now she gets away with murdering Chris. But also, what does this mean for... I just realized this kind of turns into, is this going to be apocalyptic? Because the creatures are able to eat people. I mean, I and was growing. I was thinking it could be that way. You never know. It's left kind of ambiguous. Because like, are we seeing the beginning of something... That might be the beginning of the end. If you take this play in a literal sense, what does it mean? Mm -hmm. So for the world at large, now that there's these things are multiplying, apparently. Mm -hmm. It's never specified how many of the creatures there are it, and where they came from. No, we don't. It just kind of appears in, and he accidentally hits it with his car. I also do appreciate that it opens up like in the first act or no, it'd be the first scene. Yeah. We see Chris's dad. Arthur covered in blood. You're like, oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, I know it's because of the animal, but it's it's foreshadowing. Yeah, it is foreshadowing. This this is a very smart play in that because it's trying to do a lot with a little, you know, I found uh, that the, it, it, interesting that there's a lot of music in there, a lot of rock music. Do you think it's just similarly with um, Guardians of the Galaxy? It's a way to show Chris's connection with her mother, Ellie, or do you think there's anything more to the songs or? I mean, the song choices feel deliberate for sure. And I do, they do reinforce that connection, but I also think it's a sign of the times to continue to couch us in the time period. Oh, make it really feel like 1978. Yeah. Plus they come back in that scene where she's like almost, Chris is almost like ritual dancing as she's getting ready to like put an end to Carol, you know? During the whole scene where Carol's tied up and Chris is dancing with a gas mask on and wearing Carol's un nursing uniform. She's listening to Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. Mm. Yeah, this whole family definitely had issues. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing. I, I I think it's important to stress here. No one here, no one in this story is, a, is, is remotely a good person. They all have big issues in their own way. The only one I was remotely sympathetic to was Chris. Yeah. I, even so that's why I was so mad that Carol ended up killing her at the end. Even and that Carol got away because Carol 
was the worst, in my opinion. But it is a horror, so yeah. Hugo, it, technically he's... Hugo is the only innocent yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, he's not like a little kid on, on Chris, but that's about it. And then I... I even forgot his name. Like, look, I had to look it up really quick. I could remember Carol, Arthur, and Chris. Hugo's not in it as much. Yeah. Unfortunately. Hugo Schmidt? Yes, Hugo Schmidt. There's also clearly a theme about motherhood in this. I'm not sure what the play is trying to say about it, though. But it seems like Carol is absolutely manipulative. Oh, for sure. Because mm-hmm. she'll say things and Arthur is like, really? I guess you're right. They do that to each other a lot, actually. And, and Carol is clearly pulling strings here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's definitely set up like it's I think even in like kind of like the character notes of like they just kind of want to present that like, oh, everything's fine. Everything's dandy. You know, nothing. Everything will work out in the end kind of image of what like a perfect family should be. Yeah. Um. So I think when one of them is like, yeah, it'll be fine. And like, they you know, they feed each other in that sense there's an interesting note where it says the characters are just slightly larger than life all of them with the exception of chris probably wish that they were characters on the brady bunch there may might even be laugh tracks oh my god i would love to see the stage of the laugh track could you imagine if there's like canned studio audience applause as the play ends do you imagine oh god and then maybe the sound of that getting drowned out by the the skittering and snarling and chirping of the creatures and the munching oh <laughs> I, I did like this overall. I it, it literally was felt like kind of a more of a emotional gut punch for me when because like clearly the shadow woman who's out the window is trying to tell Chris not to fall for it. Uh-huh. But mm. she does, and then Carol basically chokes slash snaps Chris's neck with her legs. And I'm like, oh fuck. <laughs> with her thighs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, Chris, oh my god. I don't know. that. The, I didn't like that, but not in the, because like I became like attached to Chris as a character, but almost it didn't feel satisfying for me in the ending. Overall, there's like definitely... If Chris died, that's fine. I just wanted Carol to lose, too. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know why it bothers me? It's because I throughout the whole thing, Chris has been totally against Carol uh-huh. this whole time. And then this is the one moment that Chris decides, you know what, I'm just going to listen to her, which is weird. Like, she's been so against her. Well, they do also share that cigarette briefly before that. That is true. There is that moment. And then Carol actually lets, not lets her guard down, but actually shows her some remorse, like appears to show her some remorse. Yeah, but it's hard to say when anybody here... Any of these people are being genuine, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting to reading this as a play because usually with reading a book, you kind of keep create the own visuals in your head and decide how you kind of almost decide how you want to present it, what characters you want to cast and all that. With this, it feels like you kind of have to think about it and be like, okay, well, how would this look? I don't know. With the book, it feels more just like it naturally happens. Mm-hmm. Your just brain naturally comes up. With this, it's like, okay, based on the parameters of what I've seen, how would this look on a stage? You know what's funny? Mm-hmm. Remember when uh, a couple of years ago, when you and I uh, went to see that production of Night of the Living Dead as a stage play? Oh, yeah. You could set it in that kind of space. And that's kind of what I was picturing as, is a very low budget, very simple set of set design, but with the characters being really selling the performance, you know? Mm-hmm. I could see that. Yeah. But the one thing is to add that crawl space. No, I mean, the crawl space isn't hard to make. You just make the stage higher. Yeah, you you have an understage or or something in front of the stage that can represent the crawl space. That could be something. It's weird because it does kind of force you to think like a a stage director. Like, okay, I would put this there. Now the window. (laughs) 
Reading the stage directions was really cool. I actually liked that aspect. I had a lot of fun with this, honestly, because it was such a nice change of pace from what we are normally reading. To have those specific visuals, it got, yeah, it's like you said, got you thinking about how would I stage this? Yeah. How, what does it look like in my head? So now you're suddenly being cast as the set designer and the director. And I don't say this is a bad thing. At yeah, all. I, I'm, I, I'm agreeing I, with you. I mean, it's just a different experience. And yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. That's one of the things I like about reading reading plays at like this. Now, why do you think this was set during 1978 of all times? That might just be a time period that the that the writer was just, you know, feels especially comfortable writing in. Or they were, you know, wanted spe specifically for those song choices. So it just made sense to have it so that they could have those song choices. I don't think that's like one that we could really like pull an answer based on like what we were able to read oh because it's it feels like it could it didn't have to be set in 78 yeah it's so kind of hyper reality in some places or stylized mm -hmm. that it could be from any era i was gonna say i think that is probably the case it's just the era maybe of the author wanted to write in i i could also make the ludo narrative <laughs> choice here that maybe they chose it because it's when the this is kind of when the veneer of the 50s and the 60s is kind of wearing off and so you still got people who are like the adults that are still kind of like i mean look at carol she's trying to put on this image of like i mean they talk about having the farrah fawcett hair putting on hairs of almost like the housewife you know true and same with arthur trying to be like the breadwinner the only person who's like got the counter almost like pseudo counterculture thing going on is chris and clearly ellie was also kind of a counterculture thing. They they met in the 60s, in the early 60s, and we know that Arthur was a veteran. He went to San Francisco, and that's where they met. Did you notice, too, that says a lot about Arthur? He moved way too fast with that. They, he moved fast with that relationship with Ellie, too. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So things keeping long-term is not as important to him, hence why he immediately dove into this relationship with Carol. It, it is implied that he might have been the one to kill his own wife because he well, as a mercy killing yeah I, I think he just just he does kind of confess it doesn't he he does yeah. pretty, like, yeah. and i am convinced that yeah like he he suffocated his wife with a pillow because we have uh, his introduction is him walking in red-handed yeah yeah oh. yeah <laughs> oh my god i didn't yeah. think about that holy shit mm -hmm. so, yeah i did appreciate that that little detail there there, there's also, I should point out, what do you all think of like the little unexplainable things? Not just like Chris's nightmare images out the window, but like the fact finds an egg in the bottom of her milk glass. And when she opens it, her mother's pearl necklace is inside. Like there's weird little things like that too. Yeah, know? that's never explained either, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that that's some of the details that I feel like, okay, where where was that going? And with like Chris being, you know, killed at the end, I feel like we didn't get that was left unfinished. So I, I I don't hate those little details. I just don't necessarily want them explained, but I want to know why they like needed to be there. So from finishing it where it where it's at now, I'm like, I don't I don't get why that needed to happen. Aside from like like why did she have to find it in an egg? Why couldn't she like have maybe just found it in Carol's stuff? and then sees her father give her another one regardless of her getting it back like i yeah yeah i think it's i i think it might be to add to the sense of something mysterious going on i mean mm. the creatures in themselves are one thing but now there's also chris and there's also the the weird thing about carol's eyes and the implication that she might at least to chris think 
uh, she might be a demon or a monster of some kind. I don't know. I guess because like, like I'm all for like, yeah, give me all the weird shit that's going on. But they just felt everything going on with Chris and like her mother's like spirit, and then the creatures and Carol being weird felt disconnected. I never mm-hmm. saw like where that connected aside from like she hates Carol. You know what? The cool thing about this being a play, though, if you were a stage director, you can actually add things or change things mm-hmm. to make the like these kind of details fit in a way. Like, for example, you, you mentioned like, oh, maybe the mother is possessing her. A stage correction or some trick of the light can show Ellie kind of possessing Chris at times. Mm-hmm. You can, and you can lean in as much or as little, depending if you're the director, you can lean as much or as little into that as you want. You mm-hmm. can play with it. I think that's maybe that's a part of it, too. You know, uh, having been in the stage play, I know that sometimes what the director or even what the actors contribute will sometimes bring deviations to what's written on the page, you know? Mm-hmm. It's all about interpretation. Which is kind of cool. To go with your whole theory, uh, theory of maybe Ellie does possess her, there is a point when she's, you know playing the music and uh, Carol's all tied up and all that. It, it seems, it says like, uh, it seems like Chris is in a trance. Yeah. And I'm uh-huh. like, that could be Ellie possessing her. Because that, that is the one thing that connected Ellie and Chris is the music. Yeah. And all the times that like certain things come up, generally speaking, when there's the connection, Ellie, it's like the way Ellie kind of reaches back either in Chris's mind or is literally a some sort of spectral force or phantom or whatever reaching back to Chris is when usually when the music's happening there's even a part where she lights that candle and she's almost trying to reach out to her mother although the egg thing is kind of weird I think it's supposed to symbolize go with the whole mother thing because the theme of mother and child really does resonate throughout this play it does so uh we have some questions uh first we have a question from Bringer thank you Bringer do you think Carol killed Chris's mom? Yes. I mean, no, indirectly she did. I think she probably put the idea of a mercy killing into Arthur. Yes. Yes. And uh, Arthur probably having seen shit and maybe even done shit in Vietnam was like, it's a mercy killing. That totally makes sense. And so I think Arthur physically did it. Carol planted the seed. Carol was the mastermind. Mm-hmm. And Arthur was just the in, in, uh, the instrument. Yeah. What are the creatures? They are grief incarnate. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they could be a result. They of could it. be. Yeah. I, yeah. Just grief freaking devours you if you let it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They devour the body of their own parent after it died, and oh. then they—that was the first meat that they ate, and then they just kept consuming and consuming and consuming baselessly because there is that whole thing where when a loved one dies especially a parent yeah i mean it's never going to go away that like that feeling of sadness will never go away but you do learn to accept it and continue although it was only two months yeah so it's still raw it's still real yeah it made sense for chris for it to still be very Especially painful for her to see her father move on so soon. That made sense, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that actually makes sense because I was trying to think of like a maybe a, the, there's themes of like grief and then also make sure it doesn't consume you. But in this case, I think maybe it is just grief can consume you, unfortunately. Well, if we want to cite another story, the the long term effects of grief on a family with Encanto. <laughs> 
if you want to hear more of us like waxing philosophical on that, you can listen to our Animusings episode about it yeah. on the Benview Network. Hey, I was on that one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we did. We do. This is the perfect thing for to have the three of us do since we are we were looking at that one that time. And now here we are mm -hmm. with the and we're dealing with another situation involving grief and family trauma and relationships breaking down, at least in Encanto, things get resolved. <laughs> That's also a Disney. Yeah, movie. yeah, it has to be in that case. But uh, you can you can kind of see where the connective tissue is in a weird way. I mean, you can also see it with um, Haunting of Hill House. Too. You can absolutely see it with Haunting of Hill House. <laughs> I mean, the series. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm going to force you to watch it at okay. some point. Okay. Because it's really good. Sure. It is really good. Jump scares. I hate them. I hate the jump scares. It's, there's not that many, and they're all justified. Fair. Is Ellie the Shadow Woman at the end? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't see why it wouldn't be her. No, I can't either. Who else would it be? Yeah, it really only shows up in relation to Chris, so it's got to be Ellie, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Did anyone read this play a bit like a sitcom, like Too Many Cooks? Mm, yeah i mean that's definitely kind of the vibe because they're they're playing it bigger than life they're kind of trying it's trying to subvert the idea of like the happy family you get in a sitcom was brady bunch a sitcom i'd say it was yeah yeah it's a sitcom because it's a situational comedy so. yeah it does every episode was some new weird nonsense whether it's uh was it jan getting hit by a football or yeah. or was that marcia wasn't that in the brady bunch movie it was in there too because it was such an important event okay uh, I think it was um, Marsha because it hurt, broke her nose. Yeah. I didn't really watch the Brady Bunch that much. It was always just something that kind of came on occasionally on like Nick at Night. Yeah. But there was one that stuck out to me, which showed how clearly in its time it was. Because this was set in the 60s. And there's a point where someone interviewed Marsha about the feminine rights movement and all that. Uh, and she's like, yeah, I think I support it. And then later on, I was like, oh, no, my family's going to see that. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then we actually got uh, some comments and a couple questions from Dan. Thank you, Dan. Dan. So I'm not sure I totally grasp everything that was happening. I neither did. Yeah. I should give it another read. I liked how bonkers it was, and I'd love to see it pulled off by a small-scale theater. Mm-hmm. I took this to be a tale of a malevolent or vengeful spirit jumping around between bodies from time to time based on the strange and erratic behavior of everyone involved. Arthur was washy, but some of his behavior seems at odds with himself. Carol eating raw ground beef. Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, she pops a bit yeah. in her mouth at one point. I forgot about that when she's making the hamburger helper. And also Chris snuggling up to Arthur in what seemed like a non-daughterly way in the beginning made me feel like everyone was being affected by whatever was in the home. Yeah, no, I'm pretty sure Carol was a fucking monster. Yeah. <laughs> a twofold. A twofold. During the war in my country, there were twofold that disguised themselves in human forms. They snatched people from their homes in the night and burned them. Their hearts were ice and their eyes were black pitch pots. And no one believed they were real until much too late. The Tootle stole her husband and two of her sons. Mmm. Also, another weird thing that I realize Hugo does is that when Chris uh, is bitten by one of the creatures, he starts sucking on the wound. Like he's trying to suck the poison out of her hand. Like yeah, poison out of her hand. To yeah. stop the bleeding. 
I mean, it's written as voice out snake bite style, but but he is 11. Yeah, that's the thing. He's 11. I think it really is just like him being like, oh, I think this is what you're supposed to do. And it just kind of comes off as off putting because he's kind of meant to be like a weird dork. He's a weird dork. And, he, you know, he's important to the plot, but he's he's not in the thick of it like these three people are, you know? So, yeah. He's kind of a victim, honestly. Everybody, yeah. So many people, especially Chris, uh, manipulate him. Yeah. So. I think you might be right that it's not just mother mother and child theme. I think grief really is affecting them. Or rather, this person's death is affecting him in a strange way. Yeah. Because, yeah, you know how that there's that phrase, grief makes people do crazy things? They're all basically being acting crazy. and But trying to hide it. At least uh, Carol and Enfer are. They're just trying to sweep it aside, push it aside, but they can't. He asked the questions, do you think there was one entity at play or more? I mean, besides the creatures? There's the creatures, there's Ellie, and then possibly the Tufel. Yeah. We're going to use the Tufel, even if it's not necessary. It's just what Hugo guesses it might be. Maybe a combination of... Maybe they all, it doesn't feel like it's, it's not just circumstance that all these three things are coming together, you know? It's weird. This is the second time I've read this play. And even so, I keep going back and feel like I'm missing details because there's so much that happens. Uh-huh. Was it the spirit of Ellie or something that was there before she died? I think it's Ellie. It's Ellie. It's Ellie. I think it's Ellie. What elements of Carol's backstory were true? And what was the real story with the pot? Pot's a metaphor. Because <laughs> the pot plays a big role in this whole thing. It play. sure does. Burned cooking pot. Because at first she said it was her mother's pot, but I think she meant to do that to manipulate Arthur. Yeah. And then later on she says, I never knew my parents. And she's like, what about the pot, though? What? And then she changes her story yet again. Every part of her story is only used in order to manipulate. Pretty much by the end, uh, I can't trust anything Carol says. No. She doesn't even seem that broken up about what happened to Arthur. Yeah, no, it was like very kind of like, oh, he's dead. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't trust Carol. <laughs> yeah, no one should. They wind up dead. She's a terrible nurse. Uh, where Chris get her gas mask at the end? Maybe Hugo's place, I guess. I think it's her dad's gas mask. Oh, yeah, I would agree. Hmm. Well, okay, he fought in Vietnam. That's true. Mustard gas and Agent Orange mm-hmm. were a thing. Man. <laughs> the idea that he would have kept that, too. There are people that have kept a lot of items from, like, their past for even if it's kind of dark. That's thing. fair. I have some hmm. World War II memorabilia stuff, like a little um, canteen. Mm-hmm. I have an ammunition box. Oh, I have an old first aid kit. Ooh. I also have oh, my mind's going blank. The knife that goes at the end, your rifle. A bayonet. There you go. That's that's honestly kind of neat. <laughs> so remember when 1980 Mount St. Helens erupted? Yeah. My mom did not live far from there, and she actually kept the ash that was oh. on her car. Ooh. Yeah, and I actually got to see that. When she brought it out of her hope chest. Watch from the depths of Mount St. Helens. Yeah. Wow. 
that's uh, all the questions Dan has. Uh, do we have any final thoughts? Now I want to see this play. <laughs> to anyone listen to the, listening to this, or is a like director or something of that nature, please perform this. I want to see this so badly. <laughs> I think it would be fun to see, especially if like they could take some of those elements that are like we're kind of nitpicking out and like made flesh them out a little bit more, flesh them out a bit more. But, yeah, I, I would pay to see this. Absolutely. I, I think the tricky part with plays too is because it is meant for the stage, it's kind of natural to give enough direction to give an idea of what the play is supposed to say, but then give that creativity to the director and as well as the rest of the cast and crew to be able to determine what they want to do with that. I've attempted to write plays. I mean, I, technically, uh, writing for Midnight Marinara, it, yeah. it's basically a play. We've written, you and I have written several plays just for audio, for radio. Mm -hmm. And with those, I've had to like say, offer a little changes here and there and say, it could be this this gender or this is what the sound should be like. Also, because I knew it was going to be for audio, I had to make sure it worked for audio. So I had to focus on the sound and everything. With, with this, this is clearly a lot of stage direction, a lot of where to place things. Again, there is some weird details that I'm not sure why they're there. Mm -hmm. But it could be to allow creativity for the director. And it could just be there for weirdness sake. <laughs> true, true. I don't know. If, I don't know if I have much more to say about it either. I I enjoyed the experience. I I liked where I liked that it did engage us in a lot of discussion about the 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 what the ifs ands the whys all that good stuff. Yeah, it definitely gave for some good speculation on like you know different themes, why different things happened. We were able to give some critique. I think overall good read and and good discussion. I would say definitely. So this is usually at the point where we would say what the next book is. However, we have uh, decided we're going to do something different. A lot of creative horror has been talking and we've been wanting to do more projects. And it's been tricky trying to make the time for that, especially since we have other lives, we have jobs and such to make way for other projects, but also make this feel like an actual podcast we are going to make darkly lit seasonal from here on out darkly lit will be going from july until december instead of letting you know what the book is at the end of every episode we will let you know what all six books will be in advance yeah we just we kind of talked about it ahead of time and we decided this is the the route we want to take the podcast and i think it's going to be really rejuvenating in that respect because while because we will know well in advance we're going to talk about it I think each of us is going to bring two books to the table. Mm -hmm. Two things that we're excited and we want to share with not only each other, but with you, our listeners, uh, to discuss. So we will have that ready for you before we kick things off. Now, the important thing is we're not doing this. We're not going to wait a whole bunch of time before we kick off this new format. We're only going to be taking technically June off before we, we begin <laughs> season two of... Uh, <laughs> Of Darkly Lit. We're not really going to really label these, let's be honest. But this is how we're going to do it in chunks. In June, we will let you know the books we're going to be reading so you can know well in advance. This will also allow us to actually provide, give more time to read. And also we might even find books that are longer as well. Because I feel like we, there's times we feel pressure to choose shorter works in order to make sure everyone has enough time to read the books by the end of the month. Mm -hmm. 
or within a month period. Mm -hmm. At least with this, you know, if we know ahead of time this. Like, we could start reading the books early if we want to. So on June 13th, keep an eye out. We will announce the list of the six books and which months we will be discussing them in, as well as keep an eye out for projects. I mean, if you like what you hear, listen to our other fine podcasts, uh, such as the Jameson Tapes and Under Crypt Analysis. Uh, I don't want to say too much about certain things, but uh, this is going to be an interesting year for uh, Midnight Marinara. This, this episode coming out in October will mark the 10th anniversary of the podcast. And there's going to be some big changes on the horizon with Midnight Marinara. I, I don't want to talk about it too much right now. Keep an eye on the Patreon feed because for some reason, these strange little audio snippets have been popping up there and they're being released for free. So you can hear them. Do, do they foreshadow something? Or are they just me doing stuff for fun? They, I promise you they have something to do with the 10th anniversary, but I don't want to say too much. Just, well, feel free to give them a listen. They're kind of an interesting curiosity. You can listen to these podcasts on uh, the Creative Horror Network at creativehorror.com, as well as on YouTube. This and Undercooked Analysis and Midnight Marinara are now all listed, uh, if you do YouTube music, as podcasts. Jameson so Tapes as well. Jameson Tapes as well. Those are all listed as podcasts now. So if you want to go through the archives of that and keep tabs on it that way, you can do it that way as well. We want to give you more options. Thanks again for listening. And whoa, whoa, what? Hey, oh, shoot. Okay, hold on. I gotta get a flashlight. I think something's back in the crawl space. I'll be right back, guys. Wait, it's not coming from the crawl space, is it? Uh, David? What? Uh oh. No. Oh, ah! Good evening, intrepid listeners. This is the Pasta Shade, the host of Midnight Marinera, and this podcast is part of CreativeHorror.com, a network of podcasts and creators working together to build a constructive community of horror fans. For more content like this, visit us at CreativeHorror.com. <laughs>